I was an English major in college before I changed my major to nursing so I could actually get a job. Um, I'm still kind of an English nerd, though. So as we start today, I want to read you what I think is the best opening sentence of any novel ever written. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Many of you probably recognize that. It's the opening sentence to Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. If we could have actually put ourselves back in history this week, back into the middle of Passion Week, like we were reading, doesn't that pretty much describe what people must have been feeling? I know I felt it as I studied this week. Wisdom and foolishness, faith and unbelief, light and darkness, hope and despair, paths directly to heaven and paths directly to hell. It was a lot. There were plots and betrayals and denials and pain and violence. And under all this chaos, God was completely in control of what was going on. He was working out his plan. He was fulfilling his prophecies. So I want to talk to you today, not about a tale of two cities, but about a tale of two gardens and a tale of two cups. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke everything into existence from nothing. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he created a man and a woman, made in his own image, and he pronounced his creation very good. And he put the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in a garden, a garden called Eden, in which he had planted every kind of tree that's a delight to the eyes and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, he planted two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave the man and the woman positive commands. They were to keep the garden, to care for creation, and to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth with God-fearing, God-praising believers. And he gave them only one negative command. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of it you shall surely die. We don't know how long it took, but one day the serpent, whom the Bible identifies as Satan and the devil, appeared and tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. He caused her to question God's goodness. He blatantly denied God's word. And he appealed to her desire to be like God, which was kind of ironic because she already was like God. She was made in the image of God. But his appeal was for her to be her own boss, to be like God in that way, to make her own rules. So she took the fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband. The Bible says he was there with her. And he ate it. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us the woman was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. That means Adam consciously and willfully disobeyed God. 
Not only did he fail in his responsibility to care for the garden and the woman as God had ordered him, but he knowingly ate the fruit which God had forbidden him. He committed an act of sinful treason against the God who created him and gave him everything. And there were serious consequences to Adam's sin in the garden. Instead of a life characterized by easy and fulfilling work, they would have a life of pain and difficulty and suffering. Eventually, they would die. All creation was affected by Adam's sin. But even more than that, the stain of Adam's sin would infect all of his descendants. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our desires are all infected by sin. And I don't mean in a passive way, not just something that we inherit, but it's something that we do. We actively sin against the God who created us and gave us everything. So God drove Adam and Eve from his garden, from the direct experience of his presence. And he placed cherubim with flaming swords in front of the garden so they could not enter and eat of the tree of life. But before he drove them out of the garden, God made a promise and gave them a picture. The promise is Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, a descendant of Adam and Eve, would one day destroy the serpent, although he would be injured doing it. And this was the very first preaching of the gospel. And then the picture, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, how do you make a garment of skin? First, you have to kill an animal. The very first animal sacrifice was made, and it was made by God to clothe Adam and Eve. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, death is the penalty. The Bible tells us without blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Death is required. But God graciously allowed the saints of the Old Testament to offer the death of an animal in their place, a sheep or a goat or a bull or a bird. Substitutionary atonement, a covering for their own sin. And the Old Testament is awash with blood. Millions of animals slaughtered to cover the sin of mankind. And it's awash with blood because it's awash with sin. Even the best of the Old Testament saints are recorded for us honestly in Scripture. We see the sins of Abraham, of Moses, of David, the sins of the judges and the kings and the prophets and the priests and the common people. No one is without sin. From the time of Adam and Eve, People were wondering when the promised seed was going to come, the one who would crush Satan and defeat sin once and for all. When would he come? And then at long last, Jesus has appeared, meeting all of the requirements to be this promised one, proving by his words and deeds that that's exactly who he is. So finally, now that we're done with that garden, let's get to our text today. We're going to read Luke 22, 19 and 20 and then skip down and read 39 through 44. Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he took the bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now skip down to 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It all began in a garden, the place where Adam sinned, and sin entered the world. And here we are in another garden. The other Gospels say that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. I don't think that's a coincidence. Jesus has eaten his last meal with his disciples. He's instituted the new covenant. He's taught them. He's dismissed Judas. He's washed their feet. He's warned them. He's prayed for them. And now he's led the 11 to the Garden of Gethsemane. As we studied Luke over the past few months, we've seen the Savior resolutely headed towards Jerusalem and going there knowing it would mean his death. He's told his disciples he would die there. And now the time has come. Jesus knew his betrayal had already happened. He knew that his arrest would happen soon, followed by trials and followed by crucifixion. It was not a surprise to him. But when they got to the garden, Luke says he was in agony. Mark says he began to be greatly distressed and his soul was sorrowful even until death. But this is why he came, isn't it? To die for for the sins of his people. What's happening here? Has he changed his mind? This, This, I don't know. I feel like the Lord's been telling me all week, this is holy ground. I'm almost afraid to talk about it. Jesus knelt and fell on his face to pray. The normal posture of prayer for a Jewish man was to be standing with your arms and your face raised to heaven. But Jesus was so overcome in so much agony and sorrow that he couldn't even stand. He fell to the ground. And he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what cup is he praying about? You look some of these references up. The Old Testament is full of references to the cup. Psalm 11 says it's fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. Ezekiel says it's a cup of horror and desolation. Psalm 75 says it's a cup that the wicked of the earth will drain down to the dregs at the time of judgment. Isaiah and Jeremiah call it the cup of God's wrath. The cup Jesus is praying about is the cup of God's holy and righteous wrath against sinners that will be poured out in the judgment. It's the cup we all deserve to drink because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And Jesus is asking the Father if there's some other way for him to complete his mission other than drinking this cup. Jesus, the perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless God-man, fully human, fully God, saw the horror of the cup he was about to drink, and his soul recoiled from it. Jonathan Edwards says that God took him to the mouth of the fiery furnace and bid him look in to see everything that was waiting for him in the wrath of God. Calvin says it was because he saw God armed with inconceivable vengeance against sin. And he saw the sins, the load of which would be laid on him, bearing him down with their enormous weight. Jesus, who had never been separated from God throughout all eternity, knew he'd be forsaken on the cross. He knew the Father would make him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He knew that he would suffer all the terrors of God's wrath against sin, and his soul recoiled from it. Now Luke only records Jesus' first prayer, asking for the cup to pass. And then he tells us, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He doesn't tell us what else Jesus prayed, but Matthew does. Matthew's gospel records three prayers. The first prayer was like the one he prayed in Luke, but the second and third prayers were different. His second and third prayers were this, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. In the first prayer, Jesus has asked for the cup to pass without his having to drink it. In the second and third prayers, he knows the cup will only pass by his drinking it. He doesn't go on asking for the cup to be removed. Now he's asking for strength and help to be obedient to the Father's will. And from Luke's description, attaining that obedience was a terrible ordeal. So what changed between the first prayer and the second and third prayers? I read an article by John Piper, which links this time of prayer to Hebrews 5, 7, which says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. How do we know he was heard, as Hebrews tells us? Well, Luke says an angel came to strengthen him. So the father's answer must have been, no, the cup cannot be removed. I will not change the plans we made together since before time began, but I will send an angel to strengthen you so that you will be able to obey. What Jesus fought so desperately for in the garden was that ability to obey the father's will. He prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And he won the battle. He finally rose from prayer and went calmly to meet his betrayers and the mob who had come to arrest him. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, that's what God had shown him. The cross would display God's glory. It would show both his mercy and his justice. And the cross would save all those wretched sinners whom the Father had given to Jesus to be his own. Our sin was paid for fully and completely on the cross, but the battle was won in the garden. The night Jesus fought for the strength to carry out his Father's will, the battle to be obedient. In obedience, he allowed himself to be smitten and afflicted by God, to bear God's wrath against wicked traitors, to become a curse for us, to bear our sins in his body on the tree, to give his life a ransom for many, to lay down his life for his sheep, and to die for the ungodly while we were still sinners, to drink from the cup of God's holy and righteous wrath against sin. So this really is a tale of two gardens. In Eden, in Eden the battle for obedience was lost by Adam without even a fight. In Gethsemane, the battle for obedience was fought by Jesus and won after a desperate fight. But this is also a tale of two cups. Jesus won the battle for obedience in the garden, so he was able to drink the cup appointed for him on the cross. The cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank on the cross is my cup. And it's your cup. It belongs to us. It doesn't belong to our sinless Savior. We are the ones who earned it. But we also saw another cup this week. The cup Jesus poured out for the disciples at the Passover meal. And likewise, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I think about these two cups every time we take communion. He took my cup, the well-deserved cup of God's wrath. He took it from me and drained it in an amazing act of grace. And in exchange, he gave me the cup of the new covenant, the cup that would cover my sin, his blood, his death as payment for our sin, his perfect obedience in place of my perfect disobedience. A tale of two gardens and a tale of two cups. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that he won the battle for obedience. We thank you that you accepted his sacrifice. We thank you that you strengthened him so that he could obey. Father, help us in our disobedience. Um, we still sin, and we sin a lot. And Father, we thank you that with you there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his work. And we pray in his name. Amen.